but nevertheless, uh, it is fitting, I, I think, as we enter into December, to begin this with being reminded of not, especially in a society where it's all about getting, and I know we don't talk that way, we tend to look at presents for other people too, but I've even looked at a few for myself already, and it's just the first of December of what I should buy myself, but um, beginning this this time of gifts and getting, if I could say it that way, we see a remarkable display of giving uh, from our Savior uh, here just in this parable of washing the disciples' feet and, in, and its explanation. Now, I want to say on the outset of this, and some of you may have been raised up in denominations or circles where um, people practiced foot washings. They would, they would do this during a communion service or hopefully, I don't know how all that would work out, but uh, you're, you're familiar with that depending on your background or, or something like that. And so, sometimes it's lost on us, the significance of it. I was talking to Remo, uh, one of Remo's friends at the men's conference. He's a uh, guy from India. He can, called himself an untouchable. I, I didn't, I, I didn't exactly knew what that meant, you know, until he explained. He's on the bottom run of the caste system, so you get that. You're, you know, they're over there, and they're, they've did something bad in some past life or whatever. But as we were talking, we we got to talking about f- people washing. Uh, washing feet of one another's. And he said the powerful witness of the gospel in India, when you take a woman who who is considered untouchable and even set aside, cast aside, abused, misused from the temple prostitution and all that, and as you share the gospel with one of these ladies and, and, and by demonstrating washing her feet, the, just the change that that makes uh, in in that presentation that you would touch Uh, One, that you would touch her feet, but two, that you would wash it. Why would you do that? And as he was telling us that that experience of going over to India and all that stuff playing out, it brought me back to this text, a reminder of the shockingness of what we see here in uh, in Jesus' actions. The humility and and really what we see in the natural sense and even even as shocking as it is countercultural and all the things that that the disciples experience the meaning the depth of the meaning behind it is even more startling isn't it and so we want to look at it this morning uh, Jesus washing his disciples' feet really you see the the illumination we'll see the illumination of it what it what what's being expressed by it, but it's also explained for us as a as an act in which we're to imitate. So it's illuminated what it means, and then and then how we are to be uh, carrying it out and imitated. And we'll hopefully get to that. But the beginning of that, let me just give us a little context in John chapter thirteen. Uh, John thirteen through seventeen is the upper room discourse, as many of you know. Uh, it is. Uh, about six o'clock on Thursday night when they would sit down and uh, have the Passover meal. And during this meal, in fact, Luke records the eagerness of Jesus in making preparations and having this time. In chapter 22, verse 15, Luke says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So in just a short period of time, not even 24 hours, Jesus would be crucified and put to death. 
In fact, by this time on the next day, Jesus would already be placed in the tomb and they would be going about to put a seal on the tomb uh, and, and all of that would be wrapped up. So this is very short in the ministry of Jesus' life. He knows his time is short. And so he has this eagerness to eat this Passover meal with his disciples. Now, the other Gospels record for us that this was a time in which Jesus instituted. Now, it's, a, it's kind of a clinical term, isn't it? He, he gave to us the gift of what we call the Lord's Supper. You recall that in the other Gospels. John doesn't deal with it in his, in his account of it because he's more focused on Jesus' his, his teaching, his, his desire to offer to his followers comfort and assurance and, and preparing them for what would come next. And so um, John, he he takes a a unique approach, which is not unusual to John. Most of his writings is is unique to him. The other gospels, he's he's sort of unique in that way. Uh, And so he he focuses on Jesus's words of comfort, his promises, his provisions, his preparation for the disciples as he it's really, he goes back to the Father. And you'll see that in verse number one uh, in just a few moments. Uh, and then his prayer in verse chapter number 17, which is a beautiful high priestly prayer of Jesus. Chapter 13 begins this setting with a parable, really an object lesson of the humility. And uh, he would assume this menial task of washing the disciples' feet. Uh, which will tell us something about himself and about his work. And by his work, I simply mean the gospel, what he's come to do, but also our own work uh, as he leaves us behind. So it might be helpful just to walk through this uh, with just a few headings for you that take notes. The first is an affirmation. So John sets in the, in the first two verses really an introduction to this sermon or this set of teaching. Uh, with an affirmation. Second, he's going to give us a display of humiliation, or or you could write the parable. That's Jesus washing the disciples' feet and then application. So we have an affirmation, we have humiliation, then we have application. So let's look at it, verse number one, if you will. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. You see this kind of tension, as Sinclair Ferguson calls it in his lesson on the upper room, between light and darkness all the way until Judas leaves and does what he is going to do as far as betraying Jesus here But nevertheless, we begin with this transition, this shift, and a reminder that Jesus is is ending his ministry here. He was born into the world. He walked 33 and a half years, and he is about to enter back into the presence of his Father. Now, this implies the resurrection, which is a good reminder to us. When Jesus considered his own suffering, it wasn't just the suffering that he had on his mind, but the joy that was set before him, that which his suffering would occur, that which would come about because of his suffering. That's what Hebrews says, right? You remember that in Hebrews chapter number 13. Basically what I'm saying, as he thought about what he would face, he understood that, that through it all, it doesn't take away the depth of it, 
Because you, you know there's that scene in Gethsemane uh, where he is in, in great agony. But even facing all of that, he understood that his death was not the end. Well, the end was glory being restored to him uh, that was due him. That's what he's saying here, that he, uh, his hour had come to depart out of this world. He's going to the Father, he will tell us later on in this sermon. So he is, he's affirming uh, this reality that Jesus was fully aware of who he was and what he came to do. He was not just kind of groping around trying to fill his way and, and figure out or lost about his own identity. And John over and over reminds us of his assurance that he had been sent from God and now he is about to go back to the Father. Uh, I know sometimes we, we get lost as we try to find ourselves, don't we? we? We get confused. Who am I? What am I supposed to do? We answer those big questions in life. Well, with Jesus, it is no mystery. He was fully aware and, and some of our liberal some of the liberal scholars in our day would tell us he he never claimed to be God or maybe he had some God sort of delusion or whatever and Jesus fully knew who he was. And that's a great reminder for us because as he knows himself what he offers us he knows he can he can provide he can secure for us. That's what he says in verse number one does he Jesus knew his hour had come that he was getting ready to face his own death. But as he was facing his own death, that his disciples would be left behind as he entered back into glory. Well, the second thing I want you to notice, not only that, and I think most notably in this verse number one, is not just the affirmation of Jesus knowing who he was, but the affirmation that Jesus loved his own. Do you see it? He said, the hour has come to depart out of this world to the Father. Notice what he says next. Having loved his own who were in the world. Now, they're not of the world. They were of the world. He called them out of the world, but he didn't take them out of the world. And he'll explain that a little bit later on. In case you're confused, you can come back for that. But he says, he has loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Now, we've already seen the motivation of God the Father in sending the Son into the world, haven't we? What was it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. John is giving us something of the motivation, the inner life of Jesus himself. What drove him through this whole process? What led him along? What was, what was stirring in him was his love for his own, those whom the Father has given to him. And even at this time of suffering, we already know he knew this hour was coming upon him. Even after at all that what he would face, his thoughts in this context, in these next few chapters, is on his own, his disciples. He loved them. Notice he not only loved them, he loved them to the end. Completely fully. It wasn't partial. It wasn't kind of, of, of love. It was he fully, completely loved them. We could say he loved them to the uttermost. There's two ways this is often explained. Once it means Jesus loved them to the end of his life. 
all the way to his crucifixion from the time he called him. We could say even before that, but, but from the time that to his, his death, he loved them all the way. I think that could be implied here, but, but I think it has a fuller meaning to it, a richer, a more lasting meaning. He loved them completely. There was nothing lacking in his love and his provision and his care for them. We know that in Psalms 23 that the saints used to sing this kind of provision and care of the good shepherd, didn't they? For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, what? Because he loves and provides completely and fully. And I think that's implied here in Jesus loving them to the end. Something full and complete, sustaining, keeping in the love of Jesus. He already mentioned that those who are given to him that are in his hand will never be plucked out of his hand. He will keep them. And so even his disciples, through his suffering and his resurrection, even in his time and eternity, even now he's demonstrating this love to the uttermost to those who draw near to him. And isn't that what Hebrews promises in chapter number 7? For the weary pilgrims. Consequently, the Hebrew writer says, he is able, the he here is Jesus, right? Where's Jesus at? Well, he's in heaven. He's, he's alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We know that. He is able to save to the uttermost. And someone said, the reason they said the uttermost, because we're the uttermost sinners. And so we need an uttermost Savior. But he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Beyond the the temporary limits of his span on earth in his human form as he is walking with his disciples, the Hebrew writer says he always lives demonstrating his love for his own by making intercession for them. That's his motivation now, his deep love for his own. I just be honest with you, I cannot fathom that. I, I, I have a hard time. One, I'm a little bit like Peter where you, you feel a little awkward when you see Jesus in such humiliation. And, and yet in the midst of that, that is the very prayer of Paul, the very thing that you and I need to see a glimpse, grasp an idea of what it means that Jesus loves me, this I know. You might recall in Ephesians chapter number 3, verse 18 and 19, where he prays for the Ephesian believers, those in Asia Minor, and essentially all believers, when he says, may, may we have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. What an amazing thought. Have you ever prayed for someone like that? That would be a good prayer, wouldn't it? How many of you would be, uh, be offended if someone said, I'm praying that you would understand the width, the depth, the height of the love of God. You'd be like, don't pray for me like that. Pray that I get out of trouble or whatever else we, we got going on in our life. No, we wouldn't say that at all. Because we need to comprehend. We need to be reminded that the depth of his love, the width of his love, the height of his love is beyond comprehend and that doesn't mean you can't understand anything about it we know that that means you'll never plummet to the depths of it you'll never exhaust it you'll never fully comprehend at the end i know why he chose me will you no you'll be amazed 
And you'll say, I don't know why he would ever choose me and love me as such he did. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would give you strength to know what cannot be exhausted and to grow in our amazement of what even John says here, that he loved them to the end. And this is not a cry of a of a of a group of of would be upstart religionists in Judaism coming to the end, is it? You know, Jesus is about to die. The disciples are going to be dispersed, and if we didn't know the whole story, it'd be like, well, well, at least he loved them until he died. No, this is a cry. This is a declaration of victory that we are invited to rest in, and that is the love of Christ. Affirmation of his love for his own. But notice verse number two. And isn't it remarkable that we find those within close proximity to Jesus that not all are his own and not all are kept by him. And even through his faithfulness and goodness and his provision and just the general grace that God has given to mankind, there will be many and are many that resist him and reject him and that work against him. In fact, what we see here in verse number two is really a fleshing out of what Jesus called uh, the leaders of his day, children of the devil, saying that, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Secondly, notice the proverb or notice the humiliation, a parable. How is love known? Well, it could be known through affirmation. We, we speak words of affirmation, don't we? We say, I love you and, and we tell them how much you mean to me and, and things like that. How many of you, you guys do that for your wives? Often, I'm sure, you wake up, I love you, the best thing in the world's ever happened to me besides being born again and, and you know, all that stuff that you say. Hallmark has, has uh, given for you to say. <laughs> Whatever, however that works out. For those of us who don't like to plagiarize, we find it uh, Hallmark very hard and the whole process. God has spoken his word to us, hasn't he? His, his love given us affirmation. We just read that. And even in John 16, as we approach that, 316, we approach that love of the Father. But it isn't just in words of affirmation, is it? It's in action. It's in deeds. He demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans 5. Here it is in great demonstration. Here Jesus says he takes this opportunity to teach his disciples his love for them. Now, verses 3 through 12 is really a parallel to Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. And you can kind of put those dots together on your, uh, as you read this later on today. Uh, John begins with the loftiness of Jesus and his position, who he is in, in verse number 3. And then he... He humbles himself and then becomes lower and then, and then he is returned back to his place in verse number 12, the beginning of this. He, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place and he begins to teach them. And so you see this kind of humiliation process and this exaltation and it's a great uh, parallel passage for you. Notice verse number 3 
as he begins this. And I think we're meant to understand this, otherwise it's lost on us. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now, what other man, or we can say in our day, what other man or woman has ever been able to say that? Who might we look at and and compare Jesus to? God even says that in the Old Testament. Who will you compare me to? What will you make me like? You know, he he tests the people of his day. And at the end of the day, the conclusion is no one. There's no one like him. Jesus himself is being set for us in that, that tone of being able to to see him and his glory, but not being able to fully comprehend or compare him to anyone else. There's no one like him. He has been given everything. He tells his disciples at his resurrection in Matthew 28, all authority, all power, all right rule is given unto me. You see that fleshed out in Revelation as he he receives the title deed of the earth. He takes the scroll from the Father's hands and And that is his right and rule, sovereign, seated at the right hand of God. All of these terms are meant to bring us to the loftiness and the the bigness, the majesty, the worthiness of this man. All things have been given unto him, even all judgment. He mentions that a few chapters earlier. That's why Paul will say, when God exalts him, gives a name above every name, every knee will bow before him, Jesus, and confess him, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So all things are given to me, or he knows this. So he's not in some kind of crisis. Even facing his suffering, he is well aware of the plan of God uh, and, and who he is and what belongs to him. He had come from God and was going back to God. Isn't that a remarkable statement? It's come from God, very God of very God, the, the confessions tell us. It's come from the Father. He didn't start in Bethlehem. You know that. I'm, I'm pretty sure you're well aware of that. And to remind you of that, he was from of old with no beginning. And here he is, very God of very God, all authority given unto him and right given unto him. Now notice verse number four. He rose up from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. What in the world? That just doesn't make sense, does it? Very God, a very God. All authority is given unto him. At the time of his own suffering, he, he lays aside his outer garment. And he takes a towel and he ties it around his waist. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking, what in the world is going on at this point? Wouldn't you be thinking that? Thank you for your honesty. I would be thinking that same thing. What is he doing? Well, verse number five, he gives us a little more insight to that. Then he pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, many of you know and you've heard uh, sermons on this and you've done studies on this. Washing feet was a miserable, undesirable task. In fact, at one point in Israel's history, it was uh, not right for a Jew to have to perform this, a Jewish servant. It was left for the Gentile servants. After all, it's kind of their dogs and, you know, you had all that stuff going on. It definitely was not right for equals to wash one another's feet. 
So if we're on the same page, uh, we're going to just sit there with dirty feet because we're not going to do it. You know, we're just, it's not right. Not only was it not right for equals not to wash one another's feet, it was, it was definitely out of the norm. Um, it was a breaking of almost a protocol in the thinking of people's day in their minds for a master or a teacher or a ruler or a leader, a prominent figure, put whatever you want in there to wash feet. And I read one account where a rabbi comes home and the mother wanted to wash his feet and he utterly refused and she actually took him to court saying it was an honor to wash his feet uh, because he was a rabbi and they rejected through the case out no you can't do it because it's such a menial task and it's such an undesirable task now of course you know they they did not wear nikes or combat boots or hunting boots or any of those things like that in those days they had sandals open toe shoes and and their feet were dirty right um Needless to say, they reclined, and so their feet was near their face. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a different world. Uh, so that, that, all that was going on. <laughs> and um, so there is a practical need in this of someone washing feet. They were at probably John Mark's house. It's a wonder they didn't get him to come in there and, and wash feet. But nevertheless, they were probably at his house. We don't know the upper room. But nevertheless, what we see here is Jesus taking this opportunity to wash their feet. To humble himself and to wipe the dirt and the mud and whatever else was in that dirt and mud from the feet of his followers. Even Judas Iscariot. I can't picture the the latter one. That's the hardest one for me. I can picture Peter and John and James. They're going to do a lot, but... And some of the other guys, even Thomas, he'll come around and and die in India somewhere. But Judas's feet, really? But notice what happens in this demonstration. So he humbles himself and he washes their feet. And Peter, often the disciple who has that gate in your mind that, that says, maybe I should think about this before I say this. Does anyone know that? They say as you get older, you lose that. I don't know if any of you are suffering from that now or not. That filter, that's what it is. He says exactly what everyone else is thinking. At least that's my impression. And what he says here in verse number 6 is not just a simple statement. Uh, actually, verse 6 and verse 8, there's a, there's a level of indignation. It's almost like a refusal. And you might recall earlier when Jesus was teaching his disciples and, and telling them he'll build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and, and so G, Peter did really great then, really great. He says, you voice mouthpiece from God. You're speaking God's word. Right after that, the next paragraph, he says something stupid. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And part of his revulsion then in Matthew chapter number 16 is because Jesus began to teach his disciples that he would die and suffer many things. And Peter just could not have that talk. In fact, he, he kind of pulls him away privately to say, let's not, let's not do this. And Jesus rebukes him openly uh, for all the other disciples to understand. And so you see this kind of rejection of this humiliation. I think that's what's going on in, in Peter's mind. 
Jesus is the Messiah and this is not how things are supposed to be. He's supposed to be served. And yet here he is taking a form that no decent Jew would take and that is the form of a servant who would wash the feet of of a bunch of disciples. And that's hard to swallow. And he says with some of an indignation. Lord, do you wash my feet? Are you, are you, are you planning on putting my... Are you, you doing this to me? And Jesus says, of course, naturally. And he says that twice to them. You don't know what I'm doing, but you will know later on. The Holy Spirit will open your eyes and give you some understanding to all this. And, you know, Peter presses in like we do. We don't get the point, right? You shall never wash my feet. There's almost like a prelude. There's, there's almost like a, Jesus takes a moment to stop, step out of what's going on here for a moment to give him and the rest of us some vital information. You see, I think it's Peter's pride. His unwilling to get past the sense of his humiliated master. And really, if you think about it, If he has a problem with being served by Jesus as a servant, washing his feet, how will he do when there's a cross involved? If he can't stand the thought of his master being a lowly, the lowest of all servants, how will he do when Jesus is a curse? And that's what it would be. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And isn't that really what Paul says is the the whole rejection of the gospel, both Jew and Gentile? Gentiles saying, you've got a God that dies? What kind of stuff is that? They don't do that. They get better, not worse. And the Jews keep stumbling over this fact. You've got a Messiah that's a curse and, and rejected by its leaders. And continually over and over, they could not bear the humiliation of this Messiah. And yet Jesus said it is the very fact that he is meek and humble and lowly of heart that we might come to him. But you cannot come to him proud because he is, as one minister has said, because he is a low, very low Savior. We must humble ourselves if we are to meet him and be ministered by him. And then Jesus, in this kind of, this kind of excerpt here in really verse number 10, and uh, through 11, he gives them something of a, an application. And I said application where we're heading with this thing. So we looked at the, the humiliation of him humbling himself and, and the affirmation of Jesus' love to the end. And the application really is in, in two parts. One, it's illumination. There's something being said about what's going on in his humility. And then there's an imitation which he requires of his followers. Notice how Jesus answers him. He says to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, you know that Jesus is speaking beyond the foot washing, right? You you get that he's not speaking of, if I don't clean your dirty feet right now, you'll never have any part with me. There's something more going on that he is pressing home to Peter and really in exposing to to really Judas as well. 
And it reminds me, and it should remind you this morning, whatever shame culturally that Jesus bore, what little bit of uncomfortableness that the disciples experienced, it paled in comparison with what Jesus really came to do. Would you agree with that? I mean, let's just face it, the dirt and mud that we have and we pick up and and, and the stuff that can be washed off, even if it took a power washer to remove it, is nothing in compared to the stain and the mark and the shame and the guilt of sin itself. No measure of dirt on their feet could compare to the filth in which Jesus would take upon himself. As I said, if he could not bear the humility of the towel, how will Peter do with the cross? How do you do with that? Him dying on the cross is a reminder that he did not die on the cross. He did not come to that cross to to just take sin because it was a light thing and it's a small thing or or sin in general, but the, the weightiness of the judgment of God which he faced. And really what he's saying here, if you will not accept my humiliation, if you will not accept my cleansing, uh, then you will have no inheritance with me. And, and really the inheritance had been on the disciples' mind most of their ministry. You remember they're going around, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is come and it's, a, it's that thought of heaven. That's what we think about heaven, isn't it? Everlasting life and joy and rest and peace and, and all those things, even the even secularists in our world kind of muse on and think about. And Jesus is saying, unless you've been cleansed by me, you will not be blessed by me and enter into that place. Isn't that really what he's saying here? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. All things are his. All things have been given unto him, all, all judgment, all grace, heaven and earth are his. But none of these blessings can we share unless we first share in that blessing of his death and resurrection. That's what he's telling Peter here. And, and Peter, I don't think he gets it. <laughs> someone said he just blurts out he doesn't think before he speaks he says not my feet only notice he goes on if that's the case i want double portion or triple portion of share in you in verse number nine lord not my feet only but also my hands and my head just wash me all away And then Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to be washed except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who would betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, if I can make just an observation about this, he makes us this, makes this point. And, and one, he's speaking about foot washing. He's speaking about being cleansed by Christ. And there is this implication here. And his response or this assertion in his response really is that this is only done once. You don't need a full cleansing every time you mess up. In fact, he's speaking about the washing away of sin, what many theologians refer to as justification, taking our sin and giving to us his righteousness. The one who has been bathed does not need to be washed except for his feet only. 
you are clean, but not every one of you. You have been forgiven. You have been justified. You are clean, Jesus observes. Other people press a little bit more. What is needed continually in the Christian life is not to be saved all over again and and for Christ to be offered up all over again or babe. But what is needed is is a continual uh, turning to Christ and the working out of holiness in our life, a cleansing from the dirt as we walk along the road. Notice he kind of implies that here as he says, only your feet uh, need to be washed except for his feet. I was thinking about Lot who vexed his righteous soul, Peter says, with the sin of the world around them. We do oftentimes walking in this world, we uh, we do dirty up our feet and are in need of washing, of turning, of being cleansed through God's word and through repentance of those things. The second application, that's that's what Jesus is getting at here, right? He's telling Peter, what I am doing to you in my humiliation isn't just to clean your feet. It's to clean your soul. And and those of you that, I trust a large part of you are saved here this morning, maybe all of you, I don't know where you're at, but you've experienced that reality in your own life, haven't you? Coming to Christ in that peace, uh, knowing and, and continually learning and growing in your understanding of what it means to be forgiven by God. Seeing that guilt and that shame of that. And I know sometimes our minds are, are, are terrible places to, to get lost. Maybe I'm the only one. And the reminder of those things come up and you feel a little bit of the pain of that. Any of you all ever been there? But what do you do when you go to the cross? You say, forgiven, justified, cleansed, no longer a child of, I'm a child of God, and that is not who I am. I have been washed and made clean. That's what Jesus has come to do, and he has come to cleanse us from these things. One writer puts it this way. What is here spoken of is not the forgiveness of sin, but the renewal by which Christ Gradual and uninterrupted succession delivers his father entirely from the sinful desires of the flesh. So there's that justified, and then there is that being sanctified. But the second application is seen here, and it almost seems as this is what Jesus had in mind before the interruption of Peter. But leave it to Peter to give us a good place for a lesson, right? Verse number 12 when he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments, resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? What's the answer to that, everyone? No. That's pretty simple. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And, and we we should just ask ourselves, obviously, is he teacher and Lord? A couple of you believe so. Um, he is still teacher and Lord. He's looking at his followers. For one, he's not trying to shame them. You should have thought of this, Peter. 
He's not trying to shame them. You should have thought about this, John. It's, it's not a shame tactic. Though it could be some shame brought about by this. Why didn't I think about that or whatever? He's not trying to do that. What he is trying to prepare them for is the moment that he is gone. And so he turns their, their affection to the, to the high thoughts of whatever they were thinking about. And that is who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, which is often in their mind, to looking at one another. Isn't that what he's doing? I am going away, and I'm leaving you here in this world. And he could say that to, to John. I'm leaving you in this world, John. I'm, I'm going away, but I'm not leaving you here by yourself, though you're kind of sitting by yourself. No one's sitting around you. I don't know what you did, but, but if you look around you, there are people in this room. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. You look around you, you see equals. You see people that, that you owe things from or, or owe things to you. And, and you're looking at it all wrong. And what I'm trying to tell you is to look around a different way. Look around at people a different way. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I'm your Lord and teacher and have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's Feet, for I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Now, if you put to this fact that he was not just a good teacher and a moral man, but he was a very God, a very God who humbled himself, not simply to wash the disciples' feet, but, but to die on a cross and to wash us away from our sins, is there really any excuse why we shouldn't or ought not to serve one another? Is there a good reason that would prevent us from caring and giving and being compassionate and serving one another? In fact, Jesus says, if I've done this, you're no greater than me. That's what he says in verse number 16. A servant is no greater than his master. A messenger is no greater than the one who sent him. A disciple is no greater than his teacher. If I've done this, you ought to also wash one another's feet. Now, does that mean we should have a foot washing? I don't think so. I've been to those. And they're kind of fun, uh, interesting. And I'll tell you one experience, but it'd probably take all the, the, and never mind the sanctification out of this message, but well, a little bit's left at this point. Um, he's not saying that you just got to go around and wash people's feet. What he is saying is that you're to go around and humble yourself and take the form of a servant, not exalt yourselves. We're to be those who give and serve and think of others above ourselves, esteem others more, high, uh, more than ourselves. We're to be those who, who demonstrate this kind of action that Jesus demonstrated. And isn't that the hard thing to do? I mean, I may be wrong with this, but Carson said this, doubtless the disciples would have been happy to wash his feet. I think if Jesus said, Peter, come wash my feet, I think Peter would have done it. He would have took a, took a bullet for him. You know, you remember you say, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, that's missing the point. So Carson says, doubtless the disciples would have been happy to wash his feet. They could not conceive of washing one another's I think that's our challenge. And it's not just our challenge. It's been a challenge for the church all along, hasn't it? Uh, not very many decades after this event took place in the upper room, James is writing a letter to the Christians, Jewish Christians that are spread out. 
uh, in the diaspora. And as the, he writes to them, he says, there's wars and fighting among you. You're, you're, you're taking some people over here and you're, you're promoting them, giving them the best seat in the house. And other people are saying, be my footstool. And this is all happening in the church, all happening among those who have known something about Jesus and made some confession of faith in Jesus. And James says it's utterly wrong. Because if we're honest, to be Christ-like is to be a servant. That's what Jesus is saying, isn't it? We're to humble ourselves and to serve one another. Not based on what we might reciprocate from one another, what we may get. And is it remarkable that Jesus is telling a group of, of people from every walk of life? I mean, you got both ends of the pole here in Jesus's group. You got one guy who's a zealot and hates Rome. You know, they called him that because they carried daggers and they would go stab somebody and, and run off and, and commit murder like that and get away from it. And, and with that, in that same group of a zealot, you got a tax collector, which is considered a traitor to Rome. And he says, look at one another. What you've seen me do to you and how you've seen me minister to you and humble myself and serve you. So I've set an example for you, verse number 15, that you should do as I have done. And in church, as we read a passage like this, I mean, I, I can say the very same. We're to look around among us, those who are here with us, those who are not here. And we're to be reminded as Christ has served us, then so ought we to serve one another. In fact, we could say the Christian who has rightly seen and understood his Lord is the one who serves others. Well, General Reno spoke of this last week much uh, in our men's conference to us that leaders are servants. Uh, first and foremost, the most important part of leading is serving, but it's also the most important part to have a blessed life. Would you say that? Don't we find that odd? I think some of the most miserable people in the world are those who are self-centered and selfish. Now, I know that's a general statement. You'd be like, where do you have your facts from that and what websites you get? I didn't. I just kind of observe Sometimes in my own misery, miserable state, uh, I find that part of the reason is I'm me-focused and not thinking about and, and serving others. You know, Jesus says in verse number 17, look at it. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Happy are you if you do them. Now, what are these things? Very quickly, I know time is running short and you're... Well, Jesus is Lord and our teacher. Servant is no greater than his master. The messenger is no greater than the one who sent him. Serving one another is Christ's likeness. It's the example that he set for us, right? And so he says, with this, it isn't just the fact that, that, that if we know these things, we are blessed in verse number 17. He says, blessed if you know them and do them. Doesn't that remind you? I think someone prayed this in our time or 
mentioned this in our time this morning of James where he says we don't want to be just hearers of the word, but we want to be doers. And Jesus says you want, to be, you want to be happy, you want to find joy. There's joy in serving one another, being obedient to God. Have you found that to be true, church? Have you found it to be uh, Christ's words to be of comfort? Well, not only will you be blessed, and I think this is part of the point, verse number 20, but this is how you will represent me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send it receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He is preparing his disciples to carry on the mission he is sending them to do. And he reminds us at verse number 35, doesn't he? If you just look over, by this all people will know that you're my disciples. Why? Because you display so many marvelous gifts of the Spirit. Because you heal people and do all sorts of neat stuff like that. Because you can... You're so gifted and talented when you speak. No, he says, this is how they'll know that you're my disciple, that you have love for one another. Amen? So Jesus has come to serve us, serving us to wash us and cleanse us. But even as he ministers there, he reminds us that joy is found in serving one another. That is to be like our master. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your great grace. Thank you for the humility that our Savior has displayed. And I confess it is easy to think in one part it, that we would serve you wholly and fully. And many times we would say this without looking and serving you by serving those you've put in our life. I pray that you would separate us from that kind of expression of Christianity that we may continue to understand and know and grow in the depth of the love of Christ and that as we do, we continue to grow in the depth and expression of our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.